which individuals, if any, from these states and you know their connections with their respective governments in the Gulf might have gotten a, a Cypriot passport, or how does Cyprus fit in in the efforts of businessmen in these countries, which more often than not are either closely affiliated to the ruling family or part of the ruling family might have looked at Cyprus as an entry point to get a European passport or to get a European visa. In this episode, I took a moment to reflect on issues relevant to Greece, Cyprus, Turkey, the Eastern Mediterranean, and the Gulf. With Alexandros Zahariadis, PhD student at the LSC, we discuss foreign and economic policy, small powers, and neoclassical realism as a framework in international relations. Hello, you're listening to an episode of the Diplomatic Academy, The Conversation, and I am your host, Petros Petrikos. Now, today's episode concerns small powers and rivalry in the Middle East. We also take a closer look at foreign policy analysis and what sort of role do countries like Greece and Cyprus may have in this area. And for this episode, we host Alexandros Zahariadis, a PhD candidate in international relations. Uh, welcome, Alexandros. It's great to have you for this episode. Uh, Petros, thank you for having me and for the opportunity to talk to you. Perfect. Just a few words first for our guest today. Uh, Alexandros is currently a PhD candidate in international relations at the London School of Economics and Political Science. He holds a bachelor's in history and politics from the University of Exeter and a master of science in international relations theory from the London School of Economics. His research focuses on the foreign policy of Greece and Cyprus in the Middle East with a particular interest in the Eastern Mediterranean and the Persian Gulf. His work also explores the interconnection between neoclassical realism and small powers. He is conducting his research at the LSE with the support of Ananasis Foundation Scholarship. So for starters, uh, Alexandros, uh, tell us a bit about your research project. So what is the main focus here? What do you hope to achieve in your research? Well, um, the, the starting point of the project came about basically with a question of, of why did Greece and Cyprus to states that, uh, especially in the case of Cyprus, but also of Greece, that are you know adjacent or even uh, part of what would one call the Middle East, um, had so little to do with the Middle East pro- before 2000, uh, with the exception of Turkey. So their their engagement with the region was focused entirely on Turkey. Now that is not something that has changed, but what has changed in the last 20 years is that we've seen. Uh, a lot more initiative and a lot more uh, interaction with uh, regional actors, be it Egypt, Israel, Jordan, and more recently, uh, their efforts to uh, expand their diplomatic network in the Gulf, in the Persian Gulf. So uh, the starting point is why did, why did we have this sort of change? Because if, if one is familiar with, uh, with the Middle East, uh, and uh, Greece and Cyprus. On the case of Greece, you had a, a kind of a third worldism, a kind of a, a, of a push towards uh, what one would call third worldism in, in the days of Andreas Papandreou and the Paso governments of the 1980s. Uh, but that didn't really amount to, to much in terms of, um, of, of realigning or of or the, the Greek foreign policy away from Europe or away from, from NATO and from the US towards the Middle East. 
And then in Cyprus, obviously Cyprus was part of the non-aligned movement and a founding member. Therefore, there were, you had a lot of important leaders like uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser uh, or Yasser Arafat, who were, you know, regional, you know, were Middle Eastern leaders. But uh, at the same time, Cyprus in the 1990s was so focused on getting into the EU that the Middle East was kind of neglected. And then there was also the push towards a solution of the Cyprus problem with an plan in the early 2000s. So for a long period of time in Greece, after the, the end of the PASO governments in, 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 in the 1990s of Andreas Papandreou, and then in Cyprus during the 1990s, because of the push towards getting into the EU, you had a, a sort of a, a period of time where the Middle East didn't feature that much. But nowadays, uh, and since uh, 2004-2005, you have all this flurry of activity that continues to these days with the trilateral partnerships, with, uh, the, uh, with the efforts to re-engage with the Persian Gulf, a region that was altogether neglected in the diplomacy of both states. So what I want to examine is why is that happening? Now, there, there, there have been various explanations in the literature, hydrocarbons, for example, being the most prominent one, uh, the fallout that Turkey had with regional allies, the effects of the economic crisis, and how that might have affected a turn towards the, that region from both Greece and Cyprus. But uh, what, I, what, I f- what I actually find is that most of these explanations do not try to, they're, they're partial in, in the sense that none of the authors in the literature so far has tried to look at these re-engagement through an all-encompassing foreign policy analysis framework. And that's where the theory that I use, you know, classical realism comes into play, which is the latest offshoot of the realist school of thought in international relations. And um, I think also the case studies that uh, that we're talking about here, Greece and Cyprus in the Middle East with the Eastern Mediterranean and the Persian Gulf being the main focus points here, form an excellent case study to, to um, see how neoclassical realism works with small powers. Because both Greece and Cyprus, depending on, on how you want to define small powers or small states, they definitely fall into that category. So, um, that the, those are the main two thrusts. I mean, there's one very empirical one on, on why has Greece and Cyprus uh, engaged with the Middle East, and then on the theoretical side of things, how does neoclassical realism help us understand that, and what are the possible limitations, if any, of that framework when it comes to small powers in this context? Mm-hmm, absolutely. And, you know, there's also this very interesting shift in terms of uh, foreign policy that we see after 2004, where Cyprus, uh, as you mentioned, enters a, joins the European Union, and there's also stronger collaboration with other European uh, member states. And this perhaps, uh, and you will probably tell us more about that, has an impact in uh, uh, the sort of relations that we see in the region with Cyprus sometimes promoting itself as a mediator between the EU and the Middle East, that which is quite an interesting concept. Uh, and we see that in, uh, with a, in government, but also in international organization circles. But let's first of all start with the empirical section. So you're comparing two regions, right? So it's the Eastern Mediterranean on the one hand and the Gulf on the other hand. So what sort of commonalities and differences do we observe in these regions? Well, I think the, the first commonality is, is that uh, most states in the Eastern Mediterranean, 
uh, are Arab states. The only non-Arab states in the region are Israel, Turkey, Greece, and Cyprus. The rest are Arab states. And if you go to the Persian Gulf, uh, again, you have most of the states in that region having a common Arab uh, culture, with exception of Iran in this case. So there's a cultural, um, there's a cultural component uh, because most of the states in, in both regions are considered part of, of what we would call the Arab world. And obviously, uh, most states in this region are, have, a, uh, have a predominant Islamic identity. Uh, now, obviously, and Petros, you would probably know more about me, Islam is by no means a monolithic entity. There are numerous different facets, uh, both in Sunni and Shia Islam. Mm -hmm. and, and these have manifested in clear ways during what we would call the Arab uprisings or the Arab Springs, depending on how you want to call that. Now, the most later commonalities that obviously the Persian Gulf has been known and has had a huge importance in international relations because of its uh, natural resources, because of its hydrocarbon potential. Saudi Arabia, for example, is the quintessential oil state for the global consumption. Qatar, for example, right now is the world's largest LNG exporter. So all of the states in that region have a huge hydrocarbon potential. Now, as it looks, the Eastern Mediterranean's uh, newly found resources do not come close to any size or magnitude to what is, is going on in the Gulf, but this is another commonality that we see. And this is a commonality that we see that has an interesting facet in is to what extent would uh, the Persian Gulf monarchies try to invest in the region, if so. I mean, there, there are some talks and there's uh, about Qatar Petroleum, for example, engagement in, in the Eastern Mediterranean, but so far it's quite small. But nonetheless, if you look at, a from, if you look at it from a historical point of view, there is an interconnectedness between the developments in both regions. Like the Gulf War is a clear example of how the Eastern Mediterranean states have played a part in, 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 that, in that region because you had a point in time where Egypt or the other quintessential Arab states of the 60s, the 70s and the 80s were not ready to, to hold Saddam Hussein and that brought about uh, the involvement of the United States. Simultaneously, you see right now how the Gulf monarchies have tried to, to play a part and have played a part in the Libyan conflict that is unfolding right now, in the Syrian civil war, with, different, with Qatar and the UAE or Saudi Arabia funding different uh, militias or groups fighting these conflicts. And uh, at the same time, even in, in the current dispute between Greece and Turkey, which is obviously unlike the previous confrontations between those two countries, it's part of this uh, Eastern Mediterranean power game. The United Arab Emirates, for example, has been very forward in its support of Greece by even sending uh, some of its pilots and jets to train with the Greeks a few weeks ago. Uh, simultaneously, Qatar has been hugely important in propping up Erdogan financially, and they have a huge stake in the Altai tank manufacturing plant, which is the new main battle tank that Turkey is producing with Qatar not only committing to buy some of these tanks, but also investing in 
the plant, uh, the production plant. So there's a lot of interconnectedness. Now, obviously, the, the differences is, to some extent, I think in the Eastern Mediterranean right now, you have a greater variety of systems of governance. Greece, Cyprus are what we would call democracies. Turkey, a few years back, it would be called a democracy. Now is in a stable trend towards authoritarianism. Israel, which in the eyes of the West is a democratic state, but with hugely important issues when it comes to the Palestinian people. So you have all this mix of different state systems, authoritarian, democratic, and systems that are, f- are falling in between. On the other hand, in the Persian Gulf, you have what we call the entire state system with uh, oil propping up uh, the Persian Gulf monarchies. And with the exception of uh, Iran, in most cases, you have no form of representative uh, governance. And at the same time, the wealth that these Gulf monarchies have amassed through the oil production that has been going on in the region since the 1930s and 1940s has allowed them to play, especially at this point in time where the old Arab military states of Syria or Egypt have essentially had huge problems financially and in political terms due to the Arab uprising, has allowed them to play a disproportionate part compared to their size. I mean, if you think of it, Qatar, for example, is a state that has a population of less than 2 million people. Same goes with the United Arab Emirates. So these are the main differences that I would pinpoint. The difference in the systems of governance and the difference in the way that wealth is amassed and produced in those states. Right. So these are quite a few examples that we have here. But as a follow-up to this particular question, where do we see Cyprus itself falling here? I mean, of course, Cyprus is in the Eastern Mediterranean, but like, uh, what does Cyprus compare and how does it compare against specific states in the Gulf? And uh, apart from Cyprus, you, uh, you also focus on Greece. So within those two states' uh, foreign policy, how do they compare against specific states in the Gulf? In the case of Cyprus, you have states in the Gulf that have a, a similar population. But again, I think the comparison here is, is, is vastly different because Greece and Cyprus are democratic states, they're EU member states, and for all purposes intended, they are parts of the West, especially Greece is, is part of NATO. Now, the Gulf states obviously have a very close connection with the United States and with the West, but are by no means a part of the West. So there's a a huge difference in the way that uh, Greece and Cyprus are being run politically in the political systems compared to the Gulf states. There's also a political economy difference because although Greece and Cyprus are hoping to become oil and gas producers in in the near future, they are not yet at that point. They're not oil or gas producing states. In comparison, the Gulf states and the Gulf monarchies, even the small ones, Qatar or the UAE or Oman, they all, especially the first two that I've mentioned here, they are very heavily reliant on oil. Their business, their economy is basically heavily reliant on their oil production and on their gas production. The question here for me is not whether Greece and Cyprus compare with those states. It's a thrust that Greece and Cyprus have made as governments towards the Gulf, especially since 2004 and even more so 
after 2008 and 9, where financially things were in a dire situation initially in Greece and then in Cyprus. We have seen a flurry of activity diplomatic-wise by both states in the Gulf. And the interesting part here is that Greece has not been so successful in attracting foreign direct investment, for example, from the Gulf towards Greece. But uh, on the other hand, Cyprus has been more successful and has been able to sell the rights to the port of Limassol, the main port of the country and a key port for trade in the Eastern Mediterranean to a company from the United Arab Emirates, which is directly linked to the, the government. So it's, it's what we would call a state capitalist firm. And a facet that, uh, to be honest, I have not explored yet, but um, based on the developments of the last few weeks uh, with the Al Jazeera Cyprus papers, it would be interesting to see which individuals, if any, from these states and you know, their connections with their respective governments in the Gulf might have gotten a, a Cypriot passport, or how does Cyprus fit in in the efforts of businessmen in these countries, which more often than not are either closely affiliated to the ruling family or part of the ruling family might have looked at Cyprus as an entry point to get a European passport or to get a European visa. Mm-hmm. Right. Interesting. Uh, let me just um, turn our, our attention to something else. Uh, you address the issue of smallness and small powers vis-a-vis security. And I think that's some, something that we have to discuss uh, because in general, and I guess this is a bit of more theoretical, in international relations and in security studies, uh, which is something that I also puzzle with in my research, we have had some debates on the concept of survival, right? So the, the literature on small states reflects that this is a key security discussion, particularly as to how survival and security concerns may actually dictate foreign policy. And while... I have personally seen this from a point of reinterpreted and reinvented identities, for instance, through image projection in the international community, adaptation to changing norms, international organizations' involvement, and so on. Your framework, the neoclassical realist framework that you're using, it focuses on a defensive strategy of alliances, resources, and essentially concerns rather than interests for small states, unlike greater powers. So would you like to explain this issue of smallness a bit more from your perspective? Yeah. So I think you've mentioned concerns rather than their interests. In my mind, those two are not incompatible. And what I mean, um, surviving as a small state is a legitimate concern, but it's also the the quintessential uh, raison d'etre of the state. It's the quintessential interest because without the securing of that interest, then you have no state or you have less of a state. So we have infringements upon sovereignty. Now, I think uh, neoclassical realism, I think what you've described there is primarily the concerns of and the way that neorealists, structural realists, uh, viewed small states and to some extent the classical realists who didn't really bother that much with the issue of small states. But I think neoclassical realism has a bit more of a flexibility as, as a theoretical framework, because it's primarily a foreign policy analysis framework, which is, is less of a, is more short-term orientated than the macro theories of Kenneth Waltz or John Mearsheimer or all of these structural realists who sought to explain international politics at any point in the history of mankind. So neoclassical realism is a bit more, more of an eclectic approach. Classical realism, provides the opportunity to explain different strategies, be that 
alliance, which is a, is a balancing strategy, but also of bandwagoning, of basically, rather than allying against the threat, creating a balance against the, the threat, aligning with the threat, and thus being able to, as uh, Randall Schroeder once said, share the spoils of victory of the revisionist power that you're aligning with. Now, there's also some research that I'm aware, aware of on the question of hedging, of how neoclassical realism can attribute and explain hedging strategies where a, a, a state doesn't necessarily sign up to a, a specific alliance, but instead tries to, you know, mm -hmm. be in good terms with all the major actors in the region, hedging bets on one rather than the other and trying to be as neutral as possible in its quest to find out about security. But also one other question that neoclassical realism can add and can influence in terms of nuancing the, the realist view on small states is the fact that neoclassical realism brings back the states, brings back the state in realism. Something that uh, basically was alluding in, in the approaches of uh, Kenneth Waltz or Gilpin or Mearsheimer of the structural realist family, who basically, in their mind, there were very few options for a small state when it came to uh, survival, when it came to, which was basically bandwagoning. Now, if you take structural realists from Stephen Walt or Kenneth Waltz or some of the accounts of Randall Schweller that were not necessarily neoclassical realists in the early 1990s, but were closer to structural realism, they would all say that a small state will basically have to bandwagon or punish. They have to, that they have to align with the, the, with the threat rather than go against the threat. Now, that is a very rational approach because the argument there goes, if a state doesn't really have the necessary wealth or the military power, to confront a threat, and if they're so small that they would have very little to offer to an alliance, then they would form no alliance, and then at the end of the day, they would stand alone against the threat. So what better way to avoid, you know, state death and surviving? That would be bandwagoning. But the reality is that things and people are not computers. They're, they are not rational-minded individuals at all times, and they, in many cases, have very little information when it comes to what happens at the international system level. They might misread situations, they might not have information to read situations properly. So, you know, statesmen in many cases act in different ways than, than what structural realism would predict. And in this case, and because you have very different foreign policy outcomes in this process, neoclassical realism comes in and tries to explain why those outcomes, despite the fact that there was X, Y, Z systemic signals, things that were happening in the international environment that should have hinted to the statesmen or the foreign policy executive that make the decisions on foreign policy to act in, in the optimal way, why have they acted suboptimally? So it brings into question stuff related to, uh, to identity, variables related to internal politics, possibly division between different and competing parts of the state. So it's a much more nuanced approach that expands the explanatory power of realism whilst adopting insights from other strands, but maintaining a top-down approach that always starts from a very structural 
realist reading of the international system. Now, just to briefly talk about how I define smallness, there has been a lot of debate about small states since the 1940s, and that debate it has not happened in a very streamlined manner. At some points, you have people working on, on different things regarding small states or small powers, but in different uh, segments and different aspects. The, way that I, the reason that I'm talking about small powers rather than small states is that I don't really care in defining a small power or a small state on some uh, measurable characteristic, like the population or the gross national product of a state or the size of its military forces. Obviously, these are important facts in understanding how someone is small or not. But the thing that I, I sort of care more about is the capacity of the states to uh, of those small powers to affect the international system as a whole, which is basically an approach that most uh, people that are familiar with the literature on small states, Keo Hain talked about in 1969, which is basically a great power has the ability to define the system. Secondary powers can influence it. Middle powers can affect it, but small powers are system ineffectual in, in a sense that they cannot cause a change in the distribution of power within the international system, or in many cases in the regional system. And then I take that and then I go into uh, what uh, Asle Tohe defines as smallness, who talked about the European Union as a whole, uh, who defined the European Union as a whole as a small power, which synthesizes that approach with some foreign policy tendencies that small states have. I mean, the first one is dependence. So small states are usually dependent upon someone else for their security to some extent, in the sense that if they were on their own, they would have very important issues of safeguarding their sovereignty and safeguarding their interests and even their survival. In the case of Cyprus, as we know, because of the de facto partition of the island since 1974, there's a very clear existential threat from Turkey. Now, the second component is variable, what Tohe calls variable geometry, which basically is because of the limited capabilities and resources that small states have and the geographical locations that they might find themselves, they have the need to set very clear priorities in their foreign policy. So whenever there is, they have a dispute with someone that's larger than them, they seek to internationalize the dispute. And that leads to the third component, which is that they are very ardent supporters of international law. As we've seen in the case of Cyprus and Greece, in the current dispute, Greece and has claimed that it's willing to solve any disputes that it has with Turkey in an international court. Simultaneously, Cyprus, when it deals with Turkey in, uh, regarding the Cyprus problem, it always refers to the UN Security Council resolutions, and they have a very legal-minded line of reasoning when they come to promote their interests within international organizations that they're very much a fan of because that allows them to expand their reach beyond what they would, could actually achieve on their own. And finally, they have a defensive posture. Anybody that's uh, familiar with the, with the Greek and Cypriot armed forces and the way that they're structured, they would know that they don't have a strike first thinking, they have a very defensive thinking, and in a sense, they would not spend a, a huge amount of money in what 
you would call necessarily as offensive weapons, but they would rather buy weapons or buy weapon systems that they would cater to defend what they have first rather than expanding, which makes also sense in financial terms. Mm -hmm. These are quite uh, interesting tools. I'm not going to lie. I have puzzled with these tools as well myself. I've uh, uh, used it for uh, specific work. And I, and I feel that in general, when we use frameworks, when we use theory to understand different concepts, it's important how we get to use different tools. I mean, I don't feel personally that there's an overarching framework to explain international relations. For sure. So this actually brings me to this other question that I have, whether this is an overarching or a comprehensive framework towards understanding the needs of big and small powers in the Middle East. Are we missing something here from the equation? And <laughs> this is probably one of the scary questions, uh, you know, uh, to ask another fellow PhD student because we have to address the limitations in our work, in our thesis. So are we missing something then from this equation here? Well, I think the first point that I want to mention is that when it comes to the Middle East and Petros, you know that probably better than I do. Uh, their theory has been used, international relations theory has been used in the Middle East by different scholars for different, different historical periods, different uh, parts of the Middle East. So there's, if one looks at the literature, there's an abundance of different theory being used on the Middle East by scholars, being uh, used to explain developments in the Middle East. Now, by no means, I don't think that neoclassical realism can answer all the questions. But the, the, the key point to understand here is what kind of questions do you want to ask and do you need answers for when you're choosing a theoretical framework? I am one that in different um, questions when it comes to the Middle East, I wouldn't use realism or I wouldn't use neoclassical realism for that matter. But I think that the kind of questions that I want to ask, neoclassical realism is a, is a very interesting framework. And if the, if the people working on it have a greater eye in choosing their intervening variables, so the, 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 inter, the internal state characteristics and developments that they bring about to explain certain foreign policy behaviors, then it can help in understanding greater things about the Middle East. Now, in my case, I don't think that what I'm doing per se is something that theoretically it has the capacity to talk about small powers in the Middle East only. But I, what I basically want to do is that neoclassical realism has been primarily used to explain foreign policy choices of what we would call great powers or small powers. There is a huge literature on the United States, a new one on China, Russia, and then you have all these important middle powers like France or Germany that have, that have been treated by neoclassical realist scholars within that framework. Now, there's not much work being done on small powers. Now, that is not to say that there's not, no work done by anybody, but what I'm seeking to do here, and that's why I'm bringing in the Persian Gulf as a case study within my treatment of Greek and Cypriot foreign policy in the Middle East, is because I think that the Persian Gulf, it will probably be a very hard case for neoclassical realism. The reason being is that there's no clear threat emanating from that region towards Greece or Cyprus. And the reality, despite what many realists like to say about survival, of course, survival and uh, safeguarding sovereignty is the paramount interest, but then small states do cater and do have other interests as well, particularly in times uh, where they might be trying to attract foreign direct investment or 
are trying to expand their diplomatic network for a variety of reasons, being even defensive diplomacy or financial or economic diplomacy or even cultural diplomacy. And as I mentioned earlier, neoclassical realism has this very top-down approach that every time we start with the international system. Now, if in the case of the Persian Gulf, I am right and that there's no threat being, no threat coming from that region, then a difficult question that neoclassical realists need to answer, because if we were talking about a theory, you have to basically address the question of my theory works to a certain extent or to any sort of case. Now, the reality and most people dealing with theory is that in some, quest, uh, in some questions, some theoretical frameworks do not give us the right lens to understand things. So the question that I'm trying to push here is, is pushing a classical realism to its limits when it comes to small states. I think that it will probably work very well as a framework when it comes to the Eastern Mediterranean, but in the Persian Gulf, I think that there's probably going to be a swing point for neoclassical realism where it will not be able to explain much because its starting point, the international system, is not going to be there to begin with. So we would have to look towards the state, the Greek and Cypriot state, in those points in time to understand why they have pushed so much towards the Gulf and why there has been this flurry of diplomatic activity. So in a sense, I think my, my point here is probably not that I'm trying to create something for the Middle East and small states per se, but primarily I want to use the Middle East with Greece and Cyprus as the case studies in the Eastern Mediterranean and the Persian Gulf as a case study to push neoclassical realism to its limits and see whether it works across the spectrum or is there a point where we have to say that neoclassical realism can't help us explain this, therefore we would go towards what we would call in the social sciences or in, in uh, foreign policy analysis towards in and politic approaches. So approaches that seek to explain foreign policy based on internal characteristics and internal developments within the state. Let's do some FPA, <laughs> some foreign policy analysis. Okay. How do you explain? Okay, let's look at Cyprus and Greece for a minute. Okay. How do you explain the ways that Greek and Cypriot foreign policies align? Is it always beneficial for Cyprus so from a separate point of view, okay. is it always beneficial for Cyprus to align its foreign policy as closely as possible to that of Greece's? Now, um, so when we're talking about Cyprus, we're talking about the Republic of Cyprus. So the Republic of Cyprus um, and people that are familiar with, uh, with Cypriot history started out as a consociational state with a bicommunal character. Now that character legally is still intact. The 1960 constitution is the jure, as lawyers would say, still in effect. But the reality is that after 1964, because of the intercommunal strife that um, engulfed the island, the Turkish Cypriots removed themselves from government. And therefore, we have a process, the, the beginning of a process in which the Republic of Cyprus gradually is becoming a de facto Cypriot state. Now, obviously, that didn't fully manifest itself until the tragic events of 1974 with the Greek coup d'etat and then the subsequent Turkish invasion of the island that has led to the current situation and the current phase of the Cyprus problem. And the reality is that the, the Republic of Cyprus is primarily inhabited by Greek-speaking Orthodox Christians. 
So obviously there is a very cultural variable here that makes the Republic of Cyprus always look towards Greece for protection, security, and in many cases, guidance or support in various issues. And to some extent, now with the EU and uh, the participation of both both states in the EU, that happens the other way around. Also, if we want to take a more realist understanding, um, they have, they, both states have a common threat perception. They have a common enemy, which is Turkey. They perceive Turkey, uh, I would say rightly, especially in the case of Cyprus, as an entity that is threatening, in the case of Cyprus, in the very survival of the state, but in the case of Greece, in safeguarding what Greece considers sovereign rights, both at land and especially, as we've seen in the latest round of confrontation that has been unfolding in the last couple of weeks, a couple of months actually, in at sea. So there's a cultural variable here, and then there's common threat perception. And the cultural variable, as you, I mean, you have been a student in uh, Greek Cypriot schools. If one looks at the, the books that we are reading as children and as adolescents in school on matters like history or language, they're all coming from Greece. They're not produced by the Ministry of uh, Education here in Cyprus, but rather they're being sent from the Ministry of Education in Greece. So there's a, a common cultural understanding that in, in many cases, it's also being perpetuated by families and, and by society as a whole in general. So it would make sense that the foreign policies that both Greece and Cyprus would look at each other as natural allies, as organic allies. Now, the question of whether it's beneficial or not for Cyprus to align its foreign policy as closely as possible to that of Greece, I think I'm one of the people that likes to take an issue-by-issue approach. Now, obviously, when it comes to the confrontation in the Eastern Mediterranean with Turkey, the Cyprus problem, I think there's a lot of sense of why Greece and Cyprus have, must have aligned foreign policies and why Cyprus has to align its foreign policy with Greek foreign policy. Because at the end of the day, uh, despite the trilateral partnerships that exist, those partnerships are by no means alliances. They're not, we have not really seen actual military support by either Egypt or Israel in the Eastern Mediterranean against Turkey in the last seven or eight years that those partnerships have been going on. And in reality, the only state that actually offers military support to Cyprus is Greece, be it in terms of equipment towards the Cypriot National Guard. But if a state will come to the aid of Cyprus in case hostilities manifest between Cyprus and and Turkey, the the most likely state that will come to the aid of, uh, of Cyprus would be Greece. Currently, I'm not very optimistic that any of the regional partners that Greece and Cyprus have right now would come to their aid in case there, there are actual hostilities. Even though Greece didn't really come to Cyprus' aid in 1974. That is a very, that is a very interesting case. I'm, I'm, I'm actually not very optimistic that Greece itself would come. Mm-hmm. The reality is that Greece has some troops on, on the island and those troops might fight the way that they did in 1974, even though Greece never acknowledged the fact that they went to war with Turkey in 74. And obviously, people that are familiar with the history, there was an internal strife in Greece at the time with a transition of governance from the junta colonists to the Karamanlis administration. 
And even though you had that transition of power, uh, Karamanlis chose not to come uh, to the aid of, of Cyprus with the famous uh, uh, quote that Cyprus is far away. So I'm not very optimistic that Greece would come either, but in reality, if anybody or, uh, or the troops of any country will fight in Cyprus for Cyprus, it would probably be Greece. Now, on other issues, for example, I think that from a Cypriot perspective, from the interest of the Cypriot state, it might not be in its best interest to always align its foreign policy with Greece without having, without examining whether that alignment would provide beneficial results for Cyprus. And a case in point is, you know, sometimes people don't consider uh, EU internal matters as foreign policy, but they fall in that jurisdiction, particularly when it comes to financial matters. In 2011, for example, the Eurogroup decided to have a haircut of the Greek sovereign debt by about 50%, and that left a massive fiscal damage to Cypriot banks by, at the tune of around 10 billion euros. Now, obviously, the, um, the Cypriot economy had huge problems with the private debt that was primarily a debt created by its own banks in the period prior to the 2013 crisis in Cyprus. But that specific point in time escalated things, in my view, and brought about events that probably could have been pushed back in time a bit and possibly providing more space to Cypriot decision makers in either the Christofias government or the Anastasiades government that followed to take a more prudent approach towards fiscal matters and also give some sort of you know, space to find other solutions that were not the basic haircut of deposits that Cyprus had to endure in 2013. In that case, uh, Cyprus didn't even discuss about whether it should accept that haircut or whether it should try to cut another deal for the Eurogroup. So in that case, that uh, alignment with Greece for Cyprus, it hurt its interests. So it's important to take an issue-by-issue issue stance when it comes to foreign policy matters and alignment between Greece and, Greece and Cyprus. But in most cases, rather than not, it, it seems so that that alignment is beneficial to both parties. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Uh, thanks for that. And uh, thank you in general for this uh, very interesting discussion. Now, do, do you have any final remarks? Anything you'd particularly like to emphasize regarding your work? Um, I think uh, I think we've covered a lot of material here, and uh, I would just like to thank you for the opportunity. And uh, I'd be glad to to listen to more of the discussions that you are preparing in the near future in this in this podcast. Thank you so much, Alexandros, and uh, it's been a real pleasure. And I wish you all the best with your work.